Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. This morning, we're going to look at quite a bit of things, and I want to just kind of preface it with this idea. First of all, I believe in the pre-trib rapture, okay? Now, I understand that there are some who want to say pre-wrath. There are some that want to say the rapture is going to take place in the middle of uh, the tribulation. And the tribulation is the technical term. We talk about it. It's really a seven-year period of time. Technically, we would call it Daniel's 70th week, okay? So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at Daniel's 70th week and what's the purpose of it? What does it say? What do we learn about that? We're going to look at um, uh, wrath and what does the Bible say about us in terms of wrath? And then we're also going to look at uh, three different things that I think uh, have been confused and hopefully I can bring some clarity to it, Lord willing. Uh, The day of the Lord, the day of Christ and the rapture. So we got a lot to cover. Uh, I will tell you this, that uh, next week, Dr. Andy Woods is going to be with us. He's a a Chafer uh, professor. He's going to be speaking on reward, and you won't want to miss that. Uh, Heaven is not our only reward. Uh, Some people want to say that, well, heaven is everybody's reward. Well, there's a truth to that, obviously, but there's reward. There's effort that we put in uh, to this work that God has called us to, and I would call them faith works. And so God will reward us uh, as we seek to follow him, walk with him in the midst of the circumstances, the ministries that he raises up for us, empowers us to participate with him in the midst of. The following week, we're going to look at the first three and a half years of uh, the tribulation. Then we're going to look at the last three and a half years of the tribulation. We're going to look at the millennium. So we're going to cover a thousand years in one sermon. That's a miracle, right? And then uh, we'll, we'll get towards Christmas and, and we'll do some wrap-up stuff, okay? So not everything that I say today is going to be comprehensive. It's not going to be all-inclusive. We're not going to be able to cover everything. I get that. Um, some of you want to go into the middle of things, and that's fine. You can take the second bus. As my father-in-law likes to say, uh, uh, I'm going to take the first one, okay? Because I think that's, that's the one that we're going on, we're called to. If you want to raid around, you go right ahead and do that. Um, So let's look at a few of these things because I think it's important to establish this. Look, folks, I don't know if if this has really hit you or not. I don't know that it's fully hit me. But we're going to see Jesus face to face. We're going to see him face to face. And I don't know, we were talking about this a little bit this morning. I don't know when the rapture is going to take place. I can't imagine that it's not in our lifetime. And do you realize that in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, so fast, that we can't really even comprehend it, that we are going to see the Lord in the clouds if the rapture takes place before our home going. We're going to see the Lord face to face in the clouds. And John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, that we're going to be changed when we see him face to face. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. We who remain are going to be caught up together with him in the clouds. And we're going to see him face to face. The question is, are we living today in light of the reality that literally at any moment we could be face to face with our Lord? What decisions are we making? What are we hanging on to that's not eternal? What is it that we we need to let go of, that we need to be corrected in, that we need to recalibrate our lives 
in order to make sure that as much as possible we are fully attuned into what Christ has for us because we will see him face to face. Three things as we look at this. First of all, Daniel's 70th week. Secondly, the deliverance from wrath. The deliverance from wrath. And lastly, some description of events. Key phrases that I think help set the tone. There's a whole lot of stuff happening. And I'll tell you, Revelation uh, is an amazing journey. Look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. 24 through 27. Daniel's given a message, and I, and I think it's really important to understand this, because I think what happens is, is we tend to look at the tribulation, and there's question as to whether believers are going to walk through the tribulation. Now, we know that there's going to be people saved during the tribulation. <laughs> you see in the middle of the tribulation period, it's a seven-year period of time, right? We know that that seven-year period of time is divided into two three-and-a-half-year periods. The first is called the trib. The second is called the great tribulation. Right dead square in the middle of that is the abomination of desolation that is told to Daniel that there's going to be a desecration of the temple and the sacrifices. The one who's made a covenant with Israel, which actually begins the tribulation period, whether he makes the covenant or ratifies a covenant already in existence is is a good question. But the fact is that there's going to be a covenant with the nation of Israel. Uh, There will be sacrifice. They will have a temple. In Jerusalem. And as a result, they will be doing sacrifices, etc. Dead square in the middle of it is the abomination of desolation. All of that is called the tribulation period. And the technical term for it is Daniel's 70th week. When we talk about the tribulation, we're talking about a seven-year period of time that was prophesied to Daniel as Daniel was given what the end times were going to look like. Now, folks, some people want to say we're in those times. In other words, we're either in the millennium or somehow we're going to... Look, this is all prophetic. This hasn't happened yet. When Daniel was given these insights, when he was given these prophecies, some of those things have already taken place. But when you think about the prophecies that he was given, whether it is the rebuilding of the wall, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, whether it's the timing of the coming of Messiah, whether it's the timing of the coming of the Antichrist, whether it's the millennium, those are like mountaintop peaks that he was looking at. He did not see the valley of what we would call the church age. When, when Daniel's looking at these prophecies, nobody in the Old Testament caught the church age because they weren't given that information. So between Daniel's 69th week and the 70th week is the entire church age. Daniel was given 69 weeks, specifically what was going to happen, and the 70th week is sometime in the future. And we don't know exactly when. But in the midst of that, We look at the rapture, the rapture is going to take place, I believe, before Daniel's 70th week. There may be some time between when the rapture actually takes place and the tribulation itself. But what we know is when the rapture takes place, there is a clock that begins to tick. And on that particular day, at that particular moment, the day of Christ and the day of the Lord, two different ages with two different perspectives and agendas will begin. One is for the Christian, one is for the unbeliever. 
The day of the Lord is an age that encompasses the entire tribulation period and even on into the millennium. When we talk about the day of the Lord, we're talking about something that the Jewish Christians understood well because they had the whole Old Testament. Paul evidently taught on it. And when we look at Thessalonians and we look at what the things that he has to say in Thessalonians to the believers, both Jewish and Gentile, he doesn't go into all the details of the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is spoken of very clearly in the Old Testament. What he has to remind them of is the day of Christ. He has to teach them about the day of Christ because this was new revelation that they weren't aware of. And he had to encourage them. You haven't missed it. (laughs) The dead in Christ are going to rise first. And then we who remain are going to be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds. So when we look at this, this is, I think, a pretty good picture of where I stand. When you look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and following, he says this, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now listen, this is where it's important. The tribulation, what does he say about this seven-week period of time, or even the entire 70 weeks? They've been decreed for who? Your people. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Israel. They have not been decreed for the church. They've been decreed for Israel. And I think that's absolutely essential to land on. That's not my words. That's what the angel Gabriel is telling Daniel. And he gives them six things. Three of them are specific to the issue of the sin of Israel. Three of them are specific to Christ establishing his rule and reign here On this earth, he says to finish the transgression, meaning the rebelliousness of the people of Israel towards God, to make an end of sin, meaning to stop the sins that they have committed, to make atonement for iniquity, meaning the depravity behind the sins that they have committed, to deal with Israel's sin, to deal with how they have rejected their Messiah, to deal with the sin that they have as a result of their unbelief. My father-in-law put it this way, and I think many of you were probably here when he preached through Daniel, and and his messages are tremendously helpful in this. What he says about this particular moment is, this for us, this happened for us when we received Christ. But the nation of Israel has not yet received him, Christ, as their Messiah. So there is a coming point here where God has decreed that he is setting aside a seven-year period of time in order to deal with the unbelief in their Messiah of Israel. That seven-year period of time has two tracks to it, and you can see this in Revelation. The first is obviously for Israel. The second is for unbelievers on this earth to give them the opportunity to repent. And folks, that is the point and purpose of Daniel's 70th week or the seven-year period that we normally call the tribulation. He goes on and he is shared, he's told about the coming kingdom of the Messiah. And if you study the whole book of Daniel, you'll see this theme over and over. The nations that rise up and God's kingdom that lasts 
forever. Whether it's the statue that is smashed by the rock that is not cut with hands that comes in and takes it out, or whether it's the beasts that rise up out of the sea, and the final kingdom of God, God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and we don't have to worry about who wins this battle. We know that the Lord wins the day. And so when we look at prophetic eschatology, when we look at what God is going to do in the end times, we recognize that God's kingdom is going to remain and last forever. The kingdoms of men do not. And in the midst of this, Daniel is given this picture of the establishing of the kingdom of the Messiah. He is told in verse 24 to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. In verse 25 he goes on, So you are to know, and you are to discern, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now, what is he doing? He's given two different periods of time that are aligned specifically for the Jewish people. The first is a seven-year period of time. We're not sure exactly why he differentiates between the seven and the 62. The seven may be specific to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Remember, they're in captivity right now. They're in Babylon, and they have to rebuild Jerusalem because it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. So that seven-year period of time, or excuse me, that seven-week period of time, which equals 49 years, is actually the time that it probably took for them to rebuild Jerusalem. The 62 weeks added to the seven equals, I believe, what? To see if you're awake, right? 62 plus seven is, oh, that's lame. Man, oh, man, even with a mic, that's pathetic. 69 weeks. Is that 70 weeks? No, 69 is one short of 70, at least in the math that I grew up with, (laughs) right, in this country. Uh, The fact of the matter is there's one week still to go. And so what he's doing here is he's establishing the time of Messiah the Prince. Now, I want you to ask yourself this. How did the Magi, we're coming into the fall, obviously we're in the fall, we're coming into Christmas. How did the Magi know that a king had been born in Bethlehem? Have you ever thought about that? See, most people say the star. I think the star was just validation of a prophecy that was already given in Daniel. Do you realize the Magi would have been connected to Daniel? They would have studied Daniel's writings. And they would have looked at this and they would have recognized that from the moment there was a decree issued to rebuild Jerusalem, a clock began to tick. And we are given that time frame, which is 483 years, right? 69 times 7 is 483. Use Google to look it up and you can figure it out, okay? 483 years from the moment that decree is given to the moment Messiah, the Prince, comes. Now think about that. I believe that those magi recognized that that prophecy, along with the sign given to them in the heavens by the star, that a king had been born. Look, it took them about two years to get there, and they began to come, and they began to worship the Lord. Herod was so jealous of what did he do? He killed all the two-year-olds and younger, the male children. Indescribable. They didn't just snap their fingers. They went to Scripture, and they were given prophecy on this. So there's 70 weeks 
that have been prophesied for Israel. Those weeks equal one-year periods of time, so it's 70 times 7 is 490 years. In verse 25, we're told specifically when the Messiah is going to come after 483 years or 69 weeks. And after the 62 weeks, which is really after the 69-week period of time, it says Messiah would be cut off, speaking of his death and his rejection. And then we're told the destruction would come to Jerusalem, and it says specifically by the people of the prince to come. Now, what what does that mean? Well, I believe what he's referring to, the people of the prince to come. He's not talking about Messiah, the prince. He's talking about the Antichrist that is to come, the people of the Antichrist. And in this case, he's talking about Titus, who came in in 70 AD and wiped out Jerusalem. He is of the line of people that are part of the Antichrist or the lawless one who are against the people of God, who are constantly fighting against the people of God, who God will allow to do certain things in order to bring about his glory in the end. 69 weeks, 483 years have taken place, and now we have one week that is still to come. In the midst of that period of time is what we have as the church age. The church age. When we begin to walk through this, we begin to understand what it is that that Daniel's 70th week is for. We recognize it is for the dealing of sin and the unbelief of Israel regarding their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as establishing the rule of Christ On this earth, which he will accomplish at the end of that 70th week, that seven-year period of time that we would call the tribulation. Well, are we to be delivered from wrath? And what does that mean? When we talk about wrath, we're talking about God's constant state of anger towards sin and or unbelief. And Daniel's 70th week is about the unbelief of Israel. It's also about, and you can see this in Revelation, it's about dealing with unbelief on this earth. So where does the church fit in to all of this? Colossians chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. Interesting verse series of verses here. He says, it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon whom? the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. In other words, you're no longer a part of them. You've been rescued out. You've been saved. You're no longer a son of disobedience. Or in Ephesians, as Paul puts it, a child of wrath. We were once children of the wrath, even as the rest, but because of God's mercy. We've been rescued out. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 Paul writes to the believers there, he says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. In other words, the tribulation. In other words, the seven-year period of time that will come upon this earth, that this earth will go through, but we are told that we will be rescued by Christ from it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you look a little further in Thessalonians, verses 1 through 6, he says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now why does he say that? Because these believers had the Old Testament. 
They were able to study about uh, the day of the Lord, this age, this period of time that begins with the tribulation and goes all the way through the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennium. It is a period of time. It is an age. It is not just a particular day. He says, you, you don't have to be taught this. I don't need, uh, you have no need of anything to be written to you on this particular issue. But then he goes on, he says, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. See, we're, we're, not, we're not of the darkness. We are of the light. We shouldn't be caught off guard. We don't know at the exact point in time when the Lord's going to rapture the church. But we do know about the day of the Lord, and we are not to be caught off guard in this. This is not for us. It's not part of the program that God has for the church, and we will be rescued out of it because we have not been destined for wrath. We will be rescued by the Lord out of it. But folks, understand that there's a lot of people that are going to go through it. How should we be living in light of that truth? 1 Thessalonians 5.9 states this very clearly. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be saved out of this tribulation period of time. He's not talking about eternal salvation there. He's talking about the rescuing from the immediate danger that this world is about to go through in terms of Daniel's 70th week and or the tribulation. Now there's several terms that we've used and I, and I hope to bring maybe some clarity on this because I think it's important to understand. There's first of all the day of the Lord. Secondly, there's the day of Christ, which is a different thing. And then there's the rapture. And what do we mean by the rapture. The day of the Lord and the day of Christ are ages. They're not simply days. They are periods of time and they have two different agendas. I like to think of it as, as railroad tracks. They're going together. They're simultaneous. But they have a different agenda. But they are happening at the same time. When do they begin? I believe they begin when the rapture takes place. And immediately a clock is set into place. Just like the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, a clock went into effect where 483 years Messiah was going to come. When the rapture of the church takes place, when the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, is taken out of here. When we go to meet the Lord in the clouds, in the air, and see him face to face, there is a clock that immediately begins to take place. One is for the day of Christ. Christ, which involves us, the believers, the church. The other is for the day of the Lord, which includes Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation, as well as on into the millennium. God's judgments will take place. When the rapture of the church begins, this clock is set into motion, and these two tracks, these two ages of time, these periods of time, with two different agendas, with two different people groups in mind. One believers, the other unbelievers, and Jewish unbelievers. The nation of Israel that God is going to begin to work on in order to win them back to himself so that they will recognize that he really is their savior. Those things now go into place. Spiros Zodiades says this, and I don't know if you've ever read Spiros, but I would encourage you to do that. 
He says, when we read of the day of the Lord or the day of Christ, we are not to think of it as a 24-hour day, but a period of time during which the judgments of the Lord Jesus Christ will take place. He says, the day of the Lord will include the time of the tribulation described in Revelation. It's a period of time. It's an age, and it includes what transpires from chapter 4 on in Revelation. The day of the Lord and the day of Christ occur simultaneously. For the church, the day of Christ is the rapture. For the unbelieving world, it is the beginning of judgment and the tribulation. Folks, understand that what we're dealing with are two different time periods, or two different ages, two different tracks, if you will, that deal with two different people groups. But they begin, that clock starts ticking when the rapture of the church begins. The day of the Lord begins immediately after the rapture of the church. It's an age including the tribulation or the 70th week of Daniel, as I've said, all the way through the millennium. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and following. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and following. He says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and are gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, the day of the Lord will not come, unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now understand this. The day of the Lord is not going to begin until those things take place. If the rapture of the church is preceding, or excuse me, is in the middle of the day of the Lord, then we would know exactly when the rapture would be taking place because we know the signs. We know what has been prophesied. We know what's going to take place. But the rapture happens before these things because the signs leading up to the coming of the day of the Lord are clear. We don't know the period of time when the rapture takes place of the church to when the tribulation actually begins. There may be years in the midst of that. We're not told that. What we are told is that there are certain signs to look for concerning the beginning of the day of the Lord. One of them is that the lawless one is going to be revealed. Spiros, again, in quoting about this, says this, The day of the Lord is therefore that extended period of time which begins with God's dealing with Israel after the rapture, at the beginning of the tribulation, and which extends through the second advent and the millennial age under the creation of the new heavens and new earth after the millennium. Why? Because signs are given regarding the day of the Lord. No sign is given with regard to the immediate return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we're in the end times and there are certain general descriptions of the end times. If you go by the message to the churches, I believe we're in the Laodicean age as we looked at a bit last week. So we can look around and we can recognize, wow, if Paul thought he was in the end times, which is really the church age, then we're at the end of the end times. How much more should we not only be walking in such a way as to meet Christ face to face, recognizing that that will happen 
And in the midst of our lives, how much more should we be going about God's business, surrendered to him, yielded to him, following him, walking with him in everything, and warning people of the coming wrath that apart from being in Christ Jesus, they will face. It's essential, folks, because this is going to happen. Well, what about the day of Christ? You can really see this in Philippians because there's a, a beautiful picture here. The day of the Lord for unbelievers, the day of the Lord being that age that deals with Daniel's 70th week all the way even to the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. The day of Christ for believers. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes this, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until what? The day of Christ Jesus. And what's he talking about? He's talking about the day we're going to meet him face to face. The day we're going to be raptured out of here as the church. The period of time, the age that involves the judgment seat of Christ where our work will be tested as by fire. And the reward that the Lord wants to give to us based on whether we walked with him by faith or not in this life will be given. He goes on in verse 9 of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. He says, This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Wow. Again, quoting from Spiros, the expression, the day of the Lord or the day of Christ occurring. And you can see these different references. It occurs throughout many of Paul's epistles. Relates to the liberation by Jesus Christ of his own, his church. We're talking about that moment in time when the body of Christ will be raptured. So the question is, well, what does the rapture mean? <laughs> well, I, okay, not to get too wonky on this, but... The word rapture is actually a Latin word. So it's not found in the New Testament. Everybody wants to go, well, the rapture is not even found in the New Testament. Well, you're right. That word isn't found. It's a Latin word. They translated it from the Greek into the Latin Vulgate, and it became rapture. So everybody thinks of this as the rapture, and everybody gets confused on it because nobody can find it. The Greek word means to be caught up caught up. And the picture is literally uh, of a wolf coming in among sheep, grabbing a particular uh, lamb and taking off and the rest of the flock not even having a clue about it. It's a snatching and it's immediate. And it's so quick that people around don't even really realize what's going on. Paul uses this of himself. This word, harpazo, this word that means rapture, this me word that means to be caught up. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, he's, he's sharing with the Corinthian believers this experience that he had uh, of being caught up into paradise. He said he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. The idea of caught up there is the idea of the rapture. He was caught up. He was immediately translated from this particular arena into the third heaven, into the very throne room of God, into the very presence of God, where he was given visions that he was not permitted to speak about, that were inexpressible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 and following, Paul puts it this way, he says, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, 
but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Wow, he's talking about being caught up with the Lord. He doesn't use that specific terminology, but that's what he's talking about. We're not all going to sleep. There's going to be a moment where the Lord comes back, and believers at that point in time, when the Lord does come back, are going to be caught up with the Lord in the air, and we, in a twinkling of an eye, are going to be changed forever. Amazing. Amazing. Are we ready for that? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is assuring these believers they thought they had missed out. And he's writing to them and he says to them, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. He's talking about those who in Christ have already gone on to be with the Lord. My father-in-law, Wayne Barber, is already with the Lord. What's going to happen to him? What's going to go on? How, How does that relate to us? He says, don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, meaning believers who have already died, fallen asleep. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be what? Caught up, raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Wow. You mean everybody prior to me that has already been in Christ and gone on to be with the Lord, my mom, my father-in-law, my grandparents, etc. That one day, if I'm still living when the Lord returns, and by the way, the Lord's return is in two parts. The first part is when he takes the church up to be with him and meet him in the clouds. The second part is when he brings the entire church back with him and all the believers from all the ages, and he rides in a white horse, and he brings judgment to this earth, and he wins the battle at Armageddon, and he sets up his throne in Jerusalem and rules and reigns on this earth. Two parts. The first is the rapture of the church. The second is the return with the saints from all ages in order to establish his kingdom here on this earth. You mean to tell me that when I meet the Lord, if I'm still alive, that they are already going to be with him. The dead in Christ are going to be raised first. And then we who remain will be caught up together with the Lord in the twinkling of an eye. We're going to be changed eternally. And he says this, so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Boy, as sure as we are sitting here today, this will take place. And the question is, are we ready? The question is, are we living our lives in light of that? The question is, are we walking in such a way that in the midst of everything, God is first. God is the priority. Our lives are reflecting him. We're yielded to him, surrendered to him, walking with him. And in the midst of it, we are ready in order to meet him face to face in the air. There's all kinds of biblical reasons for the rapture. 
I understand that there's differences of thought and differences of opinion. Let me just close with this. I like what Spiro says of this. He says, if the day of the Lord did not begin until after the second advent, since that advent is preceded by signs, it could not come as a thief in the night, unexpected and unheralded, as it is said to come in 1 Thessalonians 5.2. The only way this day, the day of the Lord, could break unexpectedly upon the world is for it to begin immediately after the rapture of the church. And Ryrie says it this way. Thus, the day of the Lord must begin at the beginning of the tribulation, and the rapture must be before. Think about that. Folks, we have an amazing Lord. We sang about him going to the cross. We sang about his return. I believe we're in the end times, and we are in the end of the end times. I I can't even fathom that the Lord wouldn't return in my lifetime in our lifetime. The question is, are we looking for him? Are we ready? Are we living it? What family do you have that doesn't know the Lord? What friends do you have that don't know the Lord? Where's the urgency? Where's the urgency? Where's the urgency in making sure that we are right related to the Lord, that we're walking with him in holiness? Where's the urgency in it all? Because, folks, we believe these things. We believe that Jesus is able to save us, and not just save us from our sins, save us from the punishment of our sin, which is hell itself, forever. And if we really believe that, and if we believe that we've been rescued from that, what about the people around us who have no hope, they don't know God, and they are destined not only for the wrath that is to come from the Lamb, on this earth, but for the everlasting fire forever and ever and ever. How are we living today in light of what we say that we absolutely believe as a certainty? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.